0: This podcast is presented by The Ed Narrative, a place for reflective discourse on education. Visit EdNarrative.com to subscribe to this podcast or our blog. You can also find the podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher. And please leave a review to help us grow this community of educators. Welcome to episode 26 of the Ed Narrative podcast. My name is Darren Ralston, and I am the producer of this podcast. This time around, we'll be talking with Dr. Gravity Goldberg, uh, who has a book out recently called Teach Like Yourself. I felt it would be an appropriate uh, conversation to have because A lot of folks are going to be heading back to school in a few weeks, uh, myself included. In fact, uh, I am in the last few days before I head off to Germany where I will be teaching at the John F. Kennedy School in Berlin. So this was definitely good for me to kind of enter back into the mindset of teaching in the classroom. I mean, I've been working as a coach, but you know, this is this is something where I was able to kind of get back and take that perspective of okay, these are some things that I might want to think about. Um, it was definitely a good conversation. I enjoyed talking with her. Um, also, by the way, you may notice that the audio sounds a little different. That's because uh, I have currently got all my worldly possessions in the uh, in the Atlantic Ocean on a container ship. So um, it's definitely something where. Uh, I'm making do with um, with some half measures, so I'm talking into my phone right now instead of my recording uh, setup. So anyway, uh, if you're wondering about that, that's what's going on. Now as far as the actual conversation we had, uh, it was done prior to me shipping my household goods. So uh, that should have the same general uh, quality as it usually does. Um, well, I think that's about it for this uh, intro. Uh, Why don't we go ahead and jump right in? Can you hear me?
1: Yes. How are you?
0: I'm doing all right. How are you doing?
1: Good. I'm in New York, Uh, and it's a rainy day, so it's one of those lazy, slow mornings. I can't complain.
0: Yeah. No. It's. uh, I'm. I'm in uh, Northern Virginia right now, uh, near DC, and same thing.
1: It's still school year here, so it's still. Oh, is it?
2: Okay. Yeah.
1: So my husband's a teacher, and I'm still in schools so for another week and a half supporting teachers. So it's sort of like the winding down and wrapping up phase, as you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. We just wrapped up two weeks ago. Well, a week and a half ago, we ended on. Uh... On Friday the seventh, uh, I am now officially on summer vacation. <laughs>
1: Congratulations! Yeah. You're working on other projects, I'm sure. But.
0: Yeah, always something. So, all right. So, uh, you ready to get started? Yeah. I wanted to start off because the book's called "Teach Like Yourself," right? I mean, I know there's lots of books like "Teach Like This" or "Teach Like That," right? But where I'm coming from is, I'm just thinking, why is it so hard for anybody to do anything as them? themselves? You know what I mean? What, what is it that makes it so hard if you're going to teach like yourself?
1: Well, I think one of the main challenges with that is our sense of insecurity sometimes of feeling like we need to be somebody else. So teachers especially I'll speak to, we spend a lot of time by ourselves without getting a lot of feedback. Yeah. So sometimes it's really hard to know like am I being effective? Am I, you know, is, is this working or not? And so what we often have to go on are either like assessment data points that happen that we get sometimes like way after the teaching to even know like was, is there even a causal relationship um, or maybe like sporadic observations, right? Mm-hmm. And then like what our students are showing us each day. And so I think for sometimes it's like this lack of feedback sometimes that can lead to insecurity or second guessing ourselves. And then I think we haven't had a lot of role models in education that have really said like, what we actually want is for you to show up as yourself. Like we hired Mm -hmm. you to be you, (laughs) you know, we didn't hire you to be the scripted program. We didn't hire you to be that awesome third grade teacher that you had. Like we actually want you to be you. And so I think the other part of that is like, that's not the message. That's the norm. And so people are looking for like, who is the teacher who has status? An approval in this school, and I guess I need to be like that person.
0: <laughs> right, yeah. Um, I, I was interested in the part you mentioned about the scripting. Have you run into places where there's a lot of scripting? I know that at one point in your, um, in your book, you'd mentioned that you were working off of a script, and you jumped off the script at some point. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if this is the appropriate time to get into that part, but it, you mentioned it, and I was just thinking how does that play into, you know, like what you just were talking about? How do you do the showing up as yourself when, you know, basically you're given a script?
1: So first I just want to be clear. I do not believe in scripted programs. I don't believe programs teach kids. People do. Yeah. (laughs) I don't like
0: those either. It, It horrifies me to be honest.
1: I think it's the de-prof- de- deprofessionalization um, of teaching. It's led mm-hmm. to that. It's led to perpetuating inequity. I mean, there's a lot of studies to, that really show that you know, scripts don't work. And mm-hmm. yet in schools, so I have the privilege as a consultant now working in schools around the country. And one of the biggest places of inequity I see is some places invest in teachers and professional learning mm-hmm. and some invest in programs. And often instead of helping teachers develop the competence and content and pedagogical knowledge, they hand them a script. And that's like the quicker, easier, low-hanging fruit. And so if a teacher is listening to this and is in a district that has invested in programs, not people, then I think one, we teachers need to speak up to that. And I think we need to talk about the fact that we need to be trusted and that we want an investment in our professional learning and I think to speak up to that, but I think the other part of that is sort of that, that part you're talking about in the book is this moment when I realized I could still follow the protocols of that phonics program, but I could actually make it more authentic. Mm -hmm. And then I think sometimes we have to live in this sort of compromised world of like, there are expectations for the way that the curriculum runs or like protocols for how we teach something, but that doesn't mean I have to lose all of myself in it. And in that case, it was this sort of dictation where we would go over like phonemes and then I'd dictate sentences. Like who said those sentences have to be the exact ones out of the book? And right. could I actually use my students interests and my interest? And so that was just one example of how we can show up as ourselves. And I think even the worst scripted programs, we have to make space for us, like how is that gonna land and how am I gonna frame that for kids?
0: Yeah, um, so I don't know, with, with that making space for yourself in a fully scripted program, any tips? I mean, I don't, you know, like I said, I I, I, I haven't actually worked in a scripted situation, yeah. but you know, as you were talking about perpetuating, you know, inequities and things like that, my assumption, and I mean, you've seen more school systems than I have, but my assumption is, is that um, for those scripted programs, those are probably landing pretty squarely in schools that are struggling. Um, to keep staff and to, you know, have just some type of coherent program.
1: Yes. So in my experience, and of course I can't speak to every place, but I think when you have a high teacher turnover rate or um, a state that doesn't require the same levels of certification and they sometimes are literally telling me gravity, we can't get enough adult bodies in the rooms. They're, they're turning to that. And I think that's a bigger issue of how we attract and retain teachers Um, But I think we actually would attract and retain teachers more if we sent the message to them that in this profession, we need you. (laughs) There's something unique about your life experience and gifts and talents that we need. I got to do some work in Sweden a few years ago, and it was really interesting to see um, the level of professionalism and the way the Swedish teachers that I met, who were from all over um, the Stockholm area, so it wasn't very rural, this particular place, but just Mm -hmm. the way they saw their role and the status that they had as teachers. So yes, I I understand that sometimes the script is because we don't have the most qualified teachers in those places, Mm -hmm. and yet, how are we going to get more qualified teachers? And then unfortunately, it's sometimes in places where we have super qualified, talented teachers, but they're not trusted by administrators. And so, you know, I've actually spent um, the year since this book came out, dedicating a lot more of my consulting to working with school leaders and district leaders. Mm -hmm. Um, Has that been
0: a shift for you?
1: So they've always been a part of my work, but I haven't really, to be honest with you, had the, I'll just admit it, maybe like the confidence. You know, I feel like now a 20 year educator, I have a little more confidence to say to to school leaders, like the shifts that you want have to start with you. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, also writing a book you know, called Teach Like Yourself has brought educators into my life and leaders into my life who mm-hmm. want this but don't know how. Right. Um, just yesterday, I was on a Zoom call with a superintendent and some supervisors who were like, we want this for our staff.
0: This, this title?
1: Yeah, oh, yeah. They, they read it, and then we want we want our teachers to teach like themselves. We want them to have agency and autonomy. Like, how do we do that? Mm-hmm. And to me, those are the the kinds of leaders that we need more of. Yeah,
0: our- yeah, yeah. I've um I've been working in uh, Albemarle County as a teacher and as an instructional coach for the last seven years, and um I've been really happy with that. Uh, they have that mentality, right? That uh, you know the the messages we get is how do we get to yes on, on projects and things like that. Right. Okay. So, um, so I've had the luxury of of working in a system like that. And then I also have been in a more traditional system where it's, no, you need to just do this thing. So it does make a difference. I know that for yeah. me, I feel like a completely different educator now than I did when I was working in a, you just need to do this thing uh, sort of uh, uh, administrative. Uh, program so so I want to kind of transition into some of the things that are that are in the book and, and I'm kind of asking this tongue in cheek after having been a coach for four years but mm-hmm. um you you mentioned that there's nothing to fix right can you qualify that and clarify it i mean i i I know what you mean and I know how that's meant but I, I want to make sure that you know for somebody who might be seeing that, that they understand.
1: Yeah, that idea that there's nothing to fix is kind of a radical idea. I didn't realize yeah. until I put it out there. So maybe I'll give a little background and then I'll talk okay. into it here. So, um, so I started my career as a special education teacher. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important because as soon as students have labels, there's a certain notion that sometimes gets carried along with that. Um, and sometimes the unspoken is that these kids are broken in some way. And that is not at all my fundamental belief. <laughs> um, I think I saw that then firsthand when sort of nieces of, of mine and you know family members started to get diagnosed with learning disabilities. Mm-hmm. And these are the people that I saw as brilliant, talented, gifted, and how like, you know they were going to change the world. And so like if we were to put a label on students that they needed to be fixed, that we were just creating a ceiling to their expectation and I read Sean Acker's work and others who talked about the fact that like, the research is so clear that whatever expectations teachers have, whether they ever explicitly state them or not, is what they're going to meet. And when we view kids as broken and needing to be fixed, then the expectations always go lower.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so then I thought about like how that also correlates to the way we work with adults and how a lot of people carry that mentality into working with adults and teachers this idea that there are good and bad teachers is to me crazy <laughs> that all teachers have gifts and talents and all teachers including myself have areas that we could grow and develop and that's where I think Carol Dweck's work on mm-hmm. having a growth mindset is so key that we don't label teachers just like I don't think it's helpful to label kids and then we don't start to view them as as broken in any way so if you don't yet know how to have a rock solid guided reading lesson? (laughs) All right, like where's the yet in that and where's Mm -hmm. the professional learning for how I can support you in that? And so, um, what the research has shown with teachers and students is even if those expectations are never explicitly stated, the kids know them. And I think it's the same thing with adults. If adults and teachers think that the coach is here or the administrator's here or the consultant is here to fix something, and we know that they shut down, their confidence gets lowers, they get more anxious, and actually they're not even open to that learning. So the idea of there's nothing to fix is to say like, first, can we get to know the teachers? Can we know their strengths? Can we see them and let them know like, I see this as a gift that you have, and can we build from that? That mm-hmm. doesn't mean we ignore the areas to grow, but we first see the gifts. And I've noticed when I approach adults that way, the growth that we take together is unbelievable. Um, and so I now explicitly say that, but I realize even when I don't, it's still in the room.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the things that, uh, you were saying as far as like the ceiling, right, you're setting a ceiling. Um, yeah. I'm thinking about, and I'm a, uh, my, my field was English literature and high school literature. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm thinking sort of in metaphorical ways as I'm, yeah. as I'm thinking through this, but, um, the idea of fixing something, right. You've got the, uh, understanding that it's been broken right and so the the course of fixing something is to restore it to its previous operable state rather than to like you're saying uh look at where there can be growth and things
1: right i never thought about it like that but yes right
0: (laughs) yeah i'm just well and that just to be honest i haven't either and and you know my model for instructional coaching was we're not here to fix you as well right i mean So, so I like that lens of um, being able to work on how to grow someone's capacity.
1: So. Yeah. And I think just one thing, as you said that, cause I'm like learning in this, in this conversation with you too, that idea of restoring something to its sort of previous state in that way would mm-hmm. also have us all end up in the same place. So yep. we're not teaching like ourselves. Right. And I think like that's, the logical thing that we're missing in the whole standards movement, not that I'm anti all of the standards movement, but Uh like when we have the same standards for everybody, we're like, our goal isn't for everybody to turn out in the exact same way. And like, what happens to society and what happens to teachers?
2: Yeah. If we
1: all are doing the exact same thing, like our our whole society would crumble.
0: Yeah, right. Uh, And I mean, so looking at that, like I know that um, there are schools that just, look at the stone tablets of the standards and say, behold, this is what we must do. Right. Right. But then you got, uh, districts where, you know, like, like we were just talking about, we're looking at how we can bring you into the game. We want to see, you know, what great things are going to happen as a, as a result of it. What are the challenges for teaching like yourself in that, uh, in that standard centric testing heavy district?
1: Well, I mean, I think the good news is the standards are open and spacious so that there mm. is room for how to do that. I mean, I just actually spent the past couple of weeks studying New York and New Jersey standards with two groups of teachers really closely. And the, the big aha for a lot of people was like, there are lots of ways to help kids meet these standards. Mm-hmm. And I think like this, the school districts that see those as sort of the, this is our one and only charge is to meet these standards. Like, so what are all the different ways? So if we look at a standard, for example, on like understanding characterization, like mm-hmm. what are all the different ways? Let's just brainstorm and think about that we can teach that and kids could demonstrate that. And I think helping people sort of open that up and even just asking teachers to think in that ways. So I just did that work yesterday with some high school teachers and uh, there were two teachers who happened to have a drama background and theater background. Mm-hmm. So they started to talk about like, oh, well, in acting or improv and like they're bringing their gifts and their talents and their background into like this is how we could introduce that concept to students and then there was another um, teacher who really really is this amazing writer and she's like well we could actually start with them as writers and so this idea of helping people see that like what your gifts and talents are and what the standards are don't need to be separate And mm-hmm. I think that's why I've been working a lot with leaders more is to help them Trust that process.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because there's
1: a lot of fear around, like, but this module or this book doesn't say that.
2: Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I think um, that's part of it is like helping people see all the entryways and all the ways through which these standards can be uh, accessed.
0: Yeah, well, you're speaking my language. I actually yeah. uh, was a drama teacher
2: too.
1: Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: um, but no, I, I like the idea of being able to. Um, see the the standards as an object you can sort of walk around and and you know keep that as the central thing but there's a lot of ways to approach it i know that through coaching one of the things that i've I've found can be an issue though is that it can also blind teachers to the possibilities that they have because they just they think we got to get these scores we got to get you know these things done so we have to drill and kill it until we get that done then we can do the fun stuff
1: And as you were saying that, like one of the things I learned, so I got to study with Seth Godin and had some pretty phenomenal Mm -hmm. mentors. And one of the things that we learned there is this idea of like whenever anybody, no matter what our field is, whether it's is leadership or or teaching or even students are seeing something as one of two options, Mm -hmm. that that's not a place to make a decision that you always need to have the third because like yeah. nothing in life exists that way. And then when you come up with the third, then the fourth and the fifth and the sixth are easier.
2: Yeah. So like part
1: of what I listen for as a coach and consultant is are we in that like dual thinking where it has to be the, like, has to be standards or it has to be yeah. authentic? Like, Have
0: you polarized your brain? <laughs> yeah. Yes,
1: exactly. Yeah. So like it's a, it's a lens that I use often to be like, what's the third option? And, and I think what you were saying is that like seeing the possibility Mm -hmm. I think we sort of lost some of that as educators, not because of the people who are attracted to teaching, but because of the narratives and the sort of narrowing of what education has become. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of our work as coaches and leaders is helping people come up with the third way.
0: Yeah, well, this... (laughs) This leads me to something else that you'd, you'd written about, but I hadn't actually thought about getting into it, but this seems like a natural uh, connection. The idea of uh, of writing down questions that you never will answer. Yeah. <laughs> Do you wanna, this seems like it's linked to sort of what we were just talking about. Um, yeah. Can you maybe clarify a little bit on the philosophy around doing that? And you know, if you wanna tie these two uh, ideas together, that that'd be great.
1: Sure. So um, one of the ways to teach like yourself is to really be able to name your core beliefs, Mm -hmm. to be able to name your why. And one of the reasons um, that I think questions are so helpful for that is we know that questions are the way that we reflect, but also the way that we build our curiosity and continue to be curious, right? So how that connects is that sort of third way, that when we think we know all that there is about a subject or a practice or a pedagogy, then sort of we're no longer asking questions. So by keeping a question journal, the the practice is really to write down the questions we have. And that could be something like in a given focus area, like a unit or a part of our practice, or it can be really wide open as teachers. And then to periodically take time to reread and reflect and then categorize those questions to sort of see what are the underlying beliefs that Mm -hmm. ride along with those questions. Mm -hmm. And I found when we feel burnt out or stale, we're starting to develop a fixed mindset. It's not answers. It's not more knowledge that's actually going to get us out of that. It's actually going to be more questions. Mm -hmm. And the hard part that I found for myself and most of the teachers I've worked with is as teachers, we like questions and answers. (laughs) There's a tension that comes with just questions without answering them, yet that's actually the important part because when we answer the question, we go back into that dualistic thinking, like there Mm. is an answer to it.
0: Yeah, we've put that one to bed,
1: Exactly, and then we're no longer curious about it. So Mm -hmm. um, as we're sitting here talking, I have a little poster next to my desk that says, Embrace Tension.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
1: And there's sort of the tension in learning, um, and that's what questions bring out for us too. Um, Because then it reminds us that there's all these possibilities that maybe we're not paying attention to, but through that tension of possibility, reinvigorates us to our practice and makes us excited to go to work the next day and mm-hmm. it helps us avoid that burnout.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, it, the that section reminded me of uh LEV cells night. There's a a teacher he had where it, who he had said to uh, a young LEV cell that the question always has more power than the answer. So I, I was, uh, that brought me back to, to that. And I, I mean, I think, um, I know that for me in an English classroom that's always been um, a very key uh, piece towards working with with literature and, and theme and it only makes sense that it would also translate to really trying to grow uh, understanding in your own life and practice.
2: Mm-hmm. So.
1: There's a few schools that actually have started like in their teacher's room they have like question bulletin boards where teachers are putting their questions up that teachers are actually bringing this to PLCs to have a little bit of that, like, peer-to-peer accountability, like, what are the questions? Uh-huh. So if people are listening and interested in that, I'd get at least one person to do it with you, whether it's a coach or a colleague, because it's hard to also keep a questioning practice up when you're by yourself in it.
0: Okay. Um, yeah. And so these uh, these schools that are doing that is mm-hmm. are these are the idea of just having the open question? Is that the...
1: Yeah. And so and what they're doing is then they're bringing some of these. So when they have it posted, it's like they're getting a sense of what are the questions that we're thinking about as a faculty, not just mm-hmm. as individuals. And then some of those questions are informing professional study, PLCs, book choices, that teachers' voices are the ones that are initiating the study that happens in a school through the questions they're asking.
0: Okay. Huh. That sounds, that sounds good. I like the idea of having uh, a partner in that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I know it makes a difference if you know you're getting ready to walk into a meeting and you're like, oh yeah, I don't have my question, right? <laughs> and then, and then you, but you know that there there's going to be plenty of questions yes.
2: at the same <laughs> yes. time.
0: So uh, that um, kind of gets me to the idea of the mirroring conversations, because you were talking about having a partner in there as well. Yeah. Um I have used as a coach mirroring strategies, but I've never seen it as a you know solid conversational format that you know that you use just that template to to run it. So, um, would you mind maybe uh, explaining what a mirroring conversation is, and then also, I don't know. I guess I need a little more clarity around it. I read the I read that uh, section. Few times to just kind of get a better idea, but like as far as like visualizing how that might look,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I was just trying to get a better feel for
2: it.
1: So I think um, whether it's like peer to peer or coaching or administrators talking to teachers about their practice, I know uh, a lot of times people are looking for like, so what's the next thing I should do, and they're thinking somebody Mm -hmm. else has the answer for them. When you know I. I also studied this book called The Coaching Habit, which was very much um, aligned to the idea that people have all the answers that they need or they have all the next steps, but yeah. they often need somebody to help them reflect. So a mirror, if we think about like what a mirror like literally does, like not just symbolically, mm-hmm. it literally reflects back what's in front of you, but it doesn't add its own opinion or its own ideas. Right. Right? So the idea of a mirroring conversation is to be a kind of you know, open and empathetic listener who's hearing what the person says and saying it back either in their own words or in slightly different words so that the person can actually hear what they're saying um, to get some more clarity around the challenge or the the next step that they're looking for. So um, the idea is simply to, so what I hear you're saying is, (laughs) am I, am I hearing you correctly? So the challenge Mm -hmm. for you in this is, um, so we would do this when, one, we have the belief that the adult we're working with is completely capable and doesn't need to be fixed.
2: Right. <laughs> and
1: right. and two, we want to help people learn to not expect someone else to solve a problem for them. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we're we're sort of taking that time to mirror and let them hear hear it back. And sometimes in the way we rephrase something, it's like, no, that's not what I meant. And that gives clarity. And sometimes we're rephrasing it in a way that's like, yes, I, I didn't know how to say it. And that's what I'm going for. So it's not that the mirror has no role, but it's really in being able to say back what you're hearing so that person can almost reprocess it through somebody else's words.
0: Okay. So, um, so then the idea is that um, as you're repeating it back to them, it's how you understood what you just heard is the yep. idea. Okay. Exactly. So then you might be talking for, you know, let's say that you had something you were talking about for about, you know, three or four minutes. I might respond with, okay, so uh, as, I've, as I've heard you say, it sounds to me like um, you are concerned about A or B happening.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And then that, that would be boiling it down so that they can hear back sort of what my takeaway was. Is that correct?
1: Exactly. So okay. y- yesterday I was with a, a leader who was saying like, I feel like I'm good at this, but like the thing that I have a hard time with is when I see something that isn't okay with me, like how do I respond? Like I mm-hmm. often don't because I don't wanna hurt anyone's feelings. Right? And she's right. like going into this. So I'm saying, so what I'm hearing you say is, um, what really, what you value is people's feelings being intact. Like I mm-hmm. hear that what you, what really matters to you is that people feel safe and good in your presence. And what I hear you saying is a challenge then is how do I give feedback that can maintain people's feeling okay? And yeah. she was like, yes, that's what the challenge is, right? I'm not solving it for her, but I'm helping her get clarity around here's a value that I have, or here's a belief that I have, and here's where the challenge is. And then we can work together to like figure out like what are you going to read or what, who might you study to learn more about that? Or is that even a real challenge or is that something that you just have in your head?
0: Right? hmm so, going into one of these conversations, you would uh, ahead of time say that this is the goal of the conversation oh, yeah. and make sure
2: that. the yes. Okay. All right.
1: Yeah. So. so, I think it's not the natural way we tend to have conversations. No, no, it isn't. <laughs> so, I would often say, and like I call it being a mirror, but people don't have to do that. I would often say, like, so like, I would like to serve as a mirror for you and help you like really get clear on what's going on. So as okay. you're talking today, I'm going to reflect back what I'm hearing.
0: In that same section where the mirroring conversations came up, um, you had also talked about like different types of practice and, and things like that. What do you do? And this is more of like a functional thing, you know, when you're putting uh, some of these practices into action. Um, what do you find yourself leaning on mostly? Because, you know, we tend to gravitate towards one or two, you know, tried and true things that we do well, right? How do you try to make sure that you're, you're providing a varied and wider experience in the teaching or in the, in the, you know, meetings or whatever you're, you're using these in?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting for me, like we, we talk about practice, but I, I actually did the research and found uh, across all different areas, psychology, evolutionary science, neurobiology, teaching, and so sort of there were those four types of practice that seemed to really apply to teaching. Um, mm-hmm. And you named some of them, and I'm just going to sort of say them back. So there's the, the idea that we can create habits through routine practice, mm-hmm. that we can create solutions through original practice, which is what you were speaking of. We can create, um, oh my gosh, I'm doing this from memory. Hold on. <laughs> I'm like trying to get the words exactly the way I said it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, here they are. We can create... Um, awareness through mindful practice and create our instincts through playful practice Mm -hmm. and in some ways i i see it as uh it doesn't have to go this way but sort of an evolution across our teaching careers that like when we're new teachers we have to create routines because we have to like set up like how does a classroom go Mm -hmm. and then i see sometimes we get stuck there like we make things routine that don't need to be routine and we know that routine is really helpful because it, it requires little to no cognition like we don't have to right. think anymore but then there's things that we're like removing thinking from that actually would be really important to put thinking back into and then that idea of, of original practice like I see this as radical so I just want to take a moment to think about it this idea that like every day when you make a teaching decision in the presence of these students that you have you're creating something that's never existed before ever
2: right. because
1: these particular students have never been in your class in this day, learning this curriculum in this way. And I think that's something that gets brushed aside, but like as teachers, like that's a huge amount of power we have is to create something that never existed before. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, even if Lucy Hawkins wrote about it or this amazing teacher you had before, you know, pass this down, like you're going to do it in your own unique way mm-hmm. with these unique um, students. And then our awareness through mindful practice and I'll speak for myself in that it took me years as a teacher to get to a part where I even realized that my mind was not always with the students in front of me. Yeah. When I think about mindfulness, it's not just some like yogic spiritual guruy thing. It's the idea of like my mind and awareness is on the current students that I'm speaking with right now. It's yeah. not on like, what's the test going to be? What standard am I working on? Who am I gonna talk to next? Am I writing enough in my grade book? It's on like these exact students. And I think that sometimes we have to sort of be teachers long enough to get to a point that we can even do that.
0: (laughs) Right, yeah. You know, I have a, a, a colleague who said that he would, he would sometimes in order to try and keep that in his mind would say that, okay, I'm designing this lesson today for Luke, right? Yes. I'm designing this lesson today for, you know, Lisa, right? And mm-hmm. and so that it was something where it would almost be like a dedication yes. of that specific class to that student. So that the design okay. was not intended to be, you know, okay, I gotta hit this standard, this standard, and this standard, all right, I've got it, let's go. And then the, you know, the actual kids in the seats are are, are not, you know, figuring into the equation. So so that was a trick that he used and and he I love would that. Yeah. yeah, and he would actually say to the kids, he's like, "Okay, so Luke, remember when you told me this thing? All right, this t- tomorrow is going to be the lesson I designed for you." So, um, and
1: that's truly responsive teaching. What you're talking yeah, about, there. like yeah. it's not just the buzzword of responsiveness; it's actually being responsive, right? <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I really, um, <laughs> I, I found, I found that he did that after I became a coach. So it's one of those things where I'm like, God. That that might have been nice to try and do that with <laughs> with my classes, so um but uh yeah. but yeah, that definitely that mindful piece that's what uh yeah. as you were explaining that 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 reminded me of, of that situation
1: I wanted to say the the last the playful practice, yeah, I almost feel like interestingly, like if we think about play in the way the, like the research literature defines it, it's play is just anything that you do because it gives you intrinsic value and you feel good by doing it. So yeah. play doesn't have to mean getting out Legos and crayons. And I think there's this sort of false dichotomy in education where like we have really serious work, right? Like there's like actual humans that we're helping to educate and transform their lives. Yet we get so serious about it that sometimes we lose the playfulness to it. Yeah. And so you know, to me, that's something that we also want to think about. Like, is there a playfulness to our practice? Meaning like we're doing something because because it brings us joy, it has intrinsic value to it. And when we have that attitude, not surprisingly, our students are more playful in class. <laughs> They're mm-hmm. more joyful. Yeah. So when I think about these four types of practice, um, as a coach, this is often something I ask teachers, like which of these types of practice do you want some coaching support on? Because I think sometimes we frame our coaching around these like tiny little like small pieces like a do now or like engagement strategies or feedback strategies, all of which are important. But is it because you're trying to create mindfulness or you're trying to create playfulness or you're trying Mm -hmm. to create something like what's the bigger umbrella, so to speak, Mm -hmm. that, that these smaller practices fit under? And I think we miss that a lot as teachers, too, like the bigger picture. And we could study for a whole year how to be more playful in our practice. Yeah. as opposed to one or two coaching sessions.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and I feel like you're, you're bringing it back to that idea of uh, core values, right? Because I, I think, you know, there are going to be um, teachers who are, are going to feel more confident when they're in a playful mode, perhaps, or, you know, uh, when they're doing, I mean, you know, a brand new teacher may feel more confident with, that sort of uh, routine
2: mm-hmm. uh,
0: type work, right? Um, so I think I can see that pretty clearly connecting with that uh, that core value and core belief piece yeah. that you'd mentioned. Do you ever, uh, when when you look at that part of of it, the core values and getting the practice laid out, do you ever connect
1: those? So I think that's really important. Is so there's like the values that we say we hold, and then there's the practices that, that's the living of of what we do, mm-hmm. and I've actually never met anyone, including myself and the best teachers in the world, where we have 100% alignment between like, here's what I believe about teaching and learning and like, here's what I actually do in my classroom every day, Uh because there's always something that gets in the way of totally aligning those. And I feel like that's actually the work of a learning partner and a coach in some of those mirroring conversations too is helping people acknowledge where those gaps are or disconnections are and come mm-hmm. up with plans for how they can align it more. And sometimes I think the, the disconnection comes from a fear of like, mm-hmm. am I allowed to do this? Will this actually work? What will people think if I do this? Right. And I think sometimes it's, you know, we all have blind spots, we think we're like awesome in this area, or we've like nailed this. Yeah. And then like somebody or some student, usually, in my experience, it's always a student who like comes in and brings gives us a reality check of like, you know what, that's not going as well as you think. Yeah. So I think there's this way of rather than pretend we all are like these totally connected beings where we're like living uh-huh. our values every day, mm-hmm. acknowledge like it's messier than that. And it's a day to day transition. And like, that's why it takes a, a whole community to help us get closer to that alignment that we're probably all looking for. And I think the teachers who stay in the profession over the long haul, and not just for a paycheck, but because they still love what they do, are the ones who are living their, their core beliefs every day the most.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering, as, as you say that, how do you get someone to, I mean, first of all, make their beliefs transparent to them right so that they can see because i mean sometimes you can say oh yeah i think this and that should be the case and you know it's totally true but the but the thing is is you maybe never examined that belief and mm-hmm. it's not really something that you do believe and and i wonder how much of that you know looking about you know walking the walk and talking the talk and all of that to what point I don't know, I don't even know how to articulate what I'm saying right now, Um, but the idea of getting those two things to merge, I mean, is how,
1: So maybe I should
2: stop because I feel like I'm babbling.
1: I think I I have, so maybe I'll give a concrete example of maybe what I think you're saying. So Recently, I had the privilege of getting to hear Cornelius Miner speak, okay. and he is a fabulous author and educator and colleague of mine. And, and Cornelius was talking about that one of the issues that gets in the way of issues of equity in our country is the like, should be able to's. Like the kids should be able to by now.
2: Oh, right? yeah. yeah or
1: like yeah. they should know how to do this or they should be able to do this. And that every time we like do that shitting, right, on the kids that, you know, there's a way in which then we're saying, say, so I'm not going to teach this, right? Because they should know this by now. Mm -hmm. But actually what we're doing, he was saying like the the actual belief underneath that, if we, and this is a very common practice, right, is that kids need to do something to earn the ability to get teaching in an area that like, Mm -hmm. I'm not saying as clearly as he is, but the idea of like, you need to earn my best teaching as opposed to simply by showing up in my classroom with whatever you do know and whatever you are able to do Mm -hmm. that I'm going to teach you to my fullest wherever you are. And when you say it that way, like, yeah, I don't think any teacher would be like, yeah, kids need to earn my best teaching. And they need to show up in a certain way for me to be my best teacher self. Like I've never heard a teacher say like, that's a belief that I have.
0: Right, I'm not gonna teach you to my best unless you can earn it
1: exactly yeah. yeah like you know so i think there's ways in which we we sometimes are like in our culture of schools have inherited these beliefs that are underneath what we're doing and what we say that haven't been totally examined and mm-hmm. they might not even like have come from us right like there's some teacher who who passed down the like these kids should be able to you yeah. know that is that you know is maybe a part of the culture and so i think you know we might also in the same school where we're hearing that have have teachers say like we have a strength based model we confer with kids we meet them where they are we're teaching culturally responsive ways yet we can't say we have all these things and then still be saying well you should be doing this and since you you should be doing this i'm not mm-hmm. going to teach it to you because you should already know it yeah, so yeah, i yeah. think like there's these places where there's always like sort of undercover like underneath beliefs that we need to examine Mm-hmm. And I think it sometimes takes outsiders to point that out to us because sometimes we're blind to those because it's a part of our school cultures. Yeah.
0: The way that you just uh, framed that, um, it makes me wish that I'd had this conversation with you about two months ago because <laughs> I'd I'd had a uh, situation where that uh, that would have been very helpful to frame it that way. So
1: yeah, but, well, uh, I just I just heard this from Cornelius. Who's yeah brilliant last week. Yeah, um, no, that's great. And I think that's why it's important though for teachers to be reading professionally and attending professional development mm-hmm. sessions and conferences because um, not that teachers aren't experts, they totally are, but it allows us to, uh, to get a different perspective on our practice that like somebody else is studying just that, right? Like, mm-hmm. like right now he's studying literacy and equity and access so that the rest of us, if we're not having that be our primary focus, can go learn and, and hear that.
0: Uh, I'm going to have to share that with uh with some of the other coaches um, so that uh, they know that. Cause I know that, uh, and this, this comes in the context of de-leveling at the secondary
1: uh, okay.
0: level and uh, some of the conversations that have resulted with, uh, with faculties around that. So, um, so yeah, that definitely, that's a different way of looking at it and I think that that could be helpful for some uh, folks to consider. Um, one of the things I like to do, uh, when I'm in a conversation with somebody is to make sure that, um, I'm not just the one deciding what we talk about. Um, so if you have anything that you would like to add, any, uh, anything that you feel like we haven't covered, um, that you, you would like to include in the conversation, um, I would, I would love to, uh, go ahead and, and, uh, take that, that, uh, direction.
1: Sure. I think talking about the idea of personal power is actually,
0: oh, and, yeah, there, yeah, and yeah, Amy yeah. Cuddy's
1: research would be helpful to, to share with people because it, at least for me, do you want to ask a question about it or don't we just talk about it?
0: Well, I, I'd forgotten. I had that written down. I've got a big long list of stuff. And <laughs> I, I only ever get to like a little bit of it whenever yeah. I'm in conversation, but uh, the idea of priming someone yeah. i thought was was uh, was really cool so um but no i'm gonna i'm gonna let you drive okay and, uh, but I, okay. I just when when you started saying that i was like oh yeah that's
2: right so, yeah
1: so, so i think you know in my work with teachers one of the things that gets in the way of people teaching like themselves is sometimes this feeling of powerlessness mm-hmm. that you know unlike many other professions um there's a lot of things that teachers have no control over that can lead to a feeling of powerless so you don't pick your colleagues you don't pick students often you don't pick their parents you don't in some places pick your professional resources you don't pick your leaders you don't pick when you can go to the bathroom <laughs> right yeah. like, like there's you know there's so many things that are just out of your hands that it can lead to sort of this apathy of like we are just powerless and that can lead to that burnout and frustration and just the the, the mentality in some schools of just tell me what you want me to do which is you know, never a place that we wanna be in as, as leaders and, and teachers. So what to me was really, really encouraging was Amy Cuddy's research on this idea that true power is the power you have over yourself, not over other people. So we actually don't need to make all those shifts to the system. Like we don't actually need to be able to pick all those things I just said, what we can choose each day is how we wanna frame our day and how we wanna show up for our students. That like all the power we actually need is, is within ourselves. And so um, what Amy Cuddy talks about is this idea of we prime ourselves each day to feel powerful or powerless. And we're often doing it not in an intentional way. So if we start our day thinking about all the things that we don't have control over, right. all the ways that we don't have power, then we actually are priming ourselves to be less powerful every day. And mm-hmm. she said, so the, the solution to that is like brilliant in its simplicity is her research found, if teachers or people, not even just teachers, spend 30 seconds in the beginning of the day or the beginning of the period, thinking and visualizing a time in your life when you felt powerful, and it doesn't have to be even related to teaching. It can just be a moment when you felt powerful. Like, to be honest, for a while recently, since I'm a new mom, it was that moment of like delivering my baby yeah. I get into the visualization. But like, <laughs> right. I feel powerful in that moment? Right. Like I created this human, right? Mm-hmm. You know, of, of visualizing that, right? That I'm stronger than I actually imagined I could be. That then all of a sudden I get prime to be a more powerful teacher for the rest of the day by visualizing that. And so I've been teaching that to teachers and saying, and teach that to your students, too. Like what if like the do now at the beginning of the period was let's all prime ourselves for feeling powerful today. And so let's all take 30 seconds to visualize a time in our lives when we were successful and powerful. We don't even need to talk about it or share it. It can be totally private for us. It can be the same one every day or different ones and that we know now from the research that will literally have an impact on the rest of our decisions and our choices. Um, It reduces anxiety and stress, (laughs) and it's free and doesn't require a curriculum or (laughs) a district administrator approval to do it. (laughs) So I feel like if there's one recommendation I make to teachers these days, it's prime yourself and and teach your students to prime themselves for for feeling more powerful.
0: Yeah, it seemed, uh... And I had never thought of it that way, but it it seemed like a, a very um, a very attainable way of of uh, bringing a more positive sense into the classroom. So yeah, no. I, when you when you said when you started there, I'm like, oh yeah. So so no, good. Thank you for bringing that up. I'm glad you said something.
1: Yeah. So. And if people are like super nerds like me, like, you know, Amy Cuddy is a great person to like watch her TED talk or read her book because there's Mm -hmm. a ton of other strategies. That's just one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe along the lines of that, too, that, you know, the goal of the book is for teachers to teach like themselves, but for the bigger picture that students can learn like themselves. So I'm hoping as as teachers dive into like being more authentic in the classroom, that they're making these strategies more explicit for students because ultimately if we want personalized learning, if we want more kids graduating and going out and changing the world for the better, then they need to be able to learn like themselves in the classrooms too.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I, um, I definitely appreciated that when I saw that in the, in the book too. You know, I like, I like being able to use, I mean like a lot of the adult learning and, and um, professional learning work that we do as educators, I think most of it can translate you know, and and I feel like um, a lot of times we, we sort of build a firewall between what we're doing over here and what we do with the kids. And I think that there's a lot of times where that just doesn't make sense. So, yeah. yeah. but um, well, uh, I appreciate your time today. I, I've had a good time talking with you I like and, I, and I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed uh, reading the book. So
1: great. Well, uh, thanks so, so much nice. for giving me this other platform to talk with you and, and for teachers and, you know, my Intention is not just to sell the book, although I always love when a book connects with people, right. but yeah, yeah. really like I, I truly think my life's work is to help teachers be able to be more authentic. And I, I think like one teacher at a time saying I'm going to be me in the classroom is, is what I'm hoping for in the world. And I think that's the way I can change the world. And I know yeah. everyone has their own way to do that. <laughs>
0: Awesome, but uh, yeah, thanks again. This was uh, this was fun. I had a I had a good talk with you. I was I was ha- I was happy that there were a couple things that just popped up where I'm like, oh, I didn't think of that. So so that's yeah, me nice
1: too. too. I always yeah. feel like I learn in these conversations too. Yeah, so yeah,
0: yeah. So definitely good. Well, uh, enjoy the rest of your rainy day.
1: <laughs> Thank you. You too. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. Thanks. Okay.
1: Take
2: care.
0: Yep. Bye. So there we have it, episode 26. Thanks again to Gravity for talking with me. I had a great conversation. We did uh, talk in mid-July... Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) we did talk in mid-June, so things were a little bit cooler at that time. Uh, not like uh, what it's been lately out here on the East Coast. Uh, you know, I mean the last few days it's felt like walking into an oven when you walk out the door, so um, so you may have noticed that there are a couple things that just don't quite hold up to what uh, maybe everybody's experiencing right now. Uh, the other thing, um, I apologize for getting this out a little bit late. Um, international moves are no joke, I've been in the thick of it for the last... Well, it feels like forever. Um, but uh, finally, um, things are pretty much at the end of the uh, process. I'll be moving into my new place next Tuesday. So uh, wish me luck on that. Uh, as far as the next episode, uh, I am planning to continue with the podcast. Um, I will probably be adjusting some of the format. Um, next time, I've thought about possibly doing an international uh, schools episode, so um, I'll let you know on that. That one might also be a little bit late as well, uh, because I will be moving into a house. I will be starting my school year on August 1 with all of my new teacher stuff, um, yada, 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 blah, 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 excuses, excuses, you get the picture. Anyway, um, definitely follow us on Twitter, at The Narrative, Uh, that's uh, the handle and then of course you're more than welcome to uh, drop a line via the website which is theednarrative.com and uh, you know I hope to hear from you Um, and for those of you who follow the blog uh, I did take a bit of a break on that once I found out I had this job so when I'm back in the saddle I think uh, I think it'll be time for me to, to restart with that so I'll be reintroducing the blog. Um, I wish you all the best. Hope you have a good year as we head into August. I know a lot of folks are going to be starting back, so I'll catch you later. Bye.